is the Evan York Podcast. So, Ron Sturgeon, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You know, you spoke at Biz Owners Ed this year in the class, and so, so excited to be here in your unbelievable office garage. You have a pretty incredible toy collection and car collection. I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah, everybody says we're the best kept secret in Fort Worth because nobody will list us with all the museums because we're too young, I guess. Yeah, pulling up, I had no idea what I was going to find inside, so happy to be here. So, obviously, knowing you from Biz Owners Ed, as a high school senior, you started an auto repair shop, really out of necessity to fix your own car. Yeah, my dad died when I was a senior in high school and left me with no place to live and no money, so I had to do something. Wow. And so you later turned that into a massive auto salvage business, which you bought back, turned around, and then these days you're in all kinds of commercial real estate. You've written multiple books. Again, you have quite a car collection and toy collection. And so, you know, I'd love to go back to the beginning and learn more about you, learn, you know, how you kind of made that progression. So walk us through why you started that auto repair shop. Walk us through that time with your dad passing and what yeah, that my was dad, like. My dad left me a 65 Volkswagen to drive and share with my brother. This was in 1971, so it was six years old. A, a new Volkswagen Bug cost 15.95 then. Wow. Still have the window sticker off wow. the window. And he left us that to drive, and so we had to keep it running. And so we opened a Volkswagen repair shop. I did. And then I later got my dealer's license and started buying and selling a few cars. And then I opened a body shop, kind of all together, just kind of working on cars. And I lived in a mobile home behind the garage. So I just didn't have much of a life. I ate and slept and came to work and ate and slept and came to work. Wow. And uh, over a period of time, that grew. And in 1978, I had accumulated 35 old wrecked cars. I would go to the salvage auction. Hmm. There were new, Salvage auctions were kind of new then. I was the 596th registered bidder at that auction, I remember. And those are cars from insurance companies. Like when you wreck your car, it goes off to an auction. Right. And they sell that to a auto recycler back then would have been called a junkyard and it's kind of funny because everybody made fun of me because i was specializing in imports or foreign cars and back then everybody called a a toyota a toyota and that's the truth right. uh, nobody had ever heard of a toyota in the 1970s right they were just starting to come in and so i had 35 cars and we'd go and we'd buy a car like if you'd bring your car in and the motor was blown up we would go off and buy a, a wrecked car bring that back we might pay 150 dollars for the car then we'd sell you the motor for 250 dollars mm. and then we'd have the rest of the car for parts and right we'd sell parts off of it so i had those 35 cars and they were parked across the street from the shop and one day the city came by and said son you can't keep those cars over there you know you're gonna have to do something with those so i went came down here in Haltom city and i rented a little lot and i brought my 35 cars and i hired one employee who was my brother and I started selling parts off of cars. And within a few months, we were selling more parts off of cars than we could ever make working wow. on cars. And wow. working on cars is a pain in the ass, as you can imagine, <laughs> keeping everybody happy. Right. right. Well, and I love how the salvage business seems like much more of a scalable business. And so how long did you have that business for before you sold it? Well, I started in 1978. And over the next 20 years, I built it to six locations, about 15 million in sales and 150 employees, which was a lot of money then yeah. compared to today and still a lot of money, relatively speaking. Uh, in 1998, I did a private stock offering to recapitalize the business so we could grow more. And in 1999, I sold the business to Ford Motor Company. Okay. 
when did you decide that it was time to sell? When did you know that the time was right for the business to sell it? When Ford Motor Company came and offered me a lot of money. <laughs> it wasn't like there were a lot of people out there buying junkyards. Right. Jack Nasser with Ford had decided that he wanted to vertically integrate and he wanted to own you. He wanted to own you when you bought your new car. Mm. He wanted to sell you parts for your car. He wanted to work on your car. He wanted to buy your car back from you after you were done with it and recycle it. Right. And there was a push for OEMs to take their products back at the end of the life cycle in Europe at the time. Okay. And Ford was kind of trying to get ahead of that. Mm. Ford went on to buy 35 more sites in 18 states. And over the next three years, they lost a quarter billion dollars. That's $250 million in the auto salvage business. So they were not great at it. It was not a good fit. Hmm. It was a terrible fit for them. The lawyers run Ford Motor Company. Now, I learned a lot at Ford Motor Company, though. I don't have anything bad to say about Ford Motor Company. Right. And then it sold to them in 1999. And in 2003, they came back and said, we've had enough. We want to sell this. Hmm. And you were the largest acquisition we did. And we'd like to sell it to you. And so we worked over the next nine months. There were a thousand employees, 35 locations, 18 states, losing a million dollars a month. Wow. And so we bought that back and over the next two years made it profitable Hmm. and then took it and sold it to the largest public company in that segment. Okay. Which was, which which is LKQ. Okay. And don't think that junkyards are a small business. LKQ is a $10 billion company, fortune 500 company, and they have, Lots of salvage yards, and the the yard that I sold them, which is just next door here, which was selling fifteen million, sold uh, seventy five million last year. Wow! For the one site, so wow! It's a big business. That's incredible. And so, what was the what was the thing that that they were not doing? I mean, you were able to take it from losing twelve million dollars a year to being profitable. What what were they doing wrong? Well, they were a little bit pompous in the sense the CEO of the division said, you know, we know a lot about building cars. We ought to be able to take them apart. Hmm. And the reality is it's not quite that simple. It is a very complicated business. And, you know, if you go out on the assembly line and you and you fetch 100 of those people that are making $52 an hour and you say, we want you to go to this junkyard and pull parts, they're all going to quit. Right. Because it's a different kind of business yeah. than building new cars. But I think the single biggest blow, by and large, was the lawyers. Hmm. They made us discontinuing selling about 25% of the parts we used to sell because of liability concerns. Interesting. Okay. So it's hard for any business to weather a 25% downturn in sales. Absolutely. And remind me again, how long did you... So you bought it back, and then how long did you have it till you sold it again? Two years. Two years. Okay, so pretty quick turnaround. Yes. Wow. So that's where you started. So let's move into investing. So you did that at the beginning when you first started out. Well, I took the money that I got from Ford. Okay. It's public knowledge what I got. I got $14.1 million, but I owed about $6 million. Okay. So I ended up with $8 million. I lost a million dollars in the stock market over the next two years, <laughs> okay. which was stupid, and I hate the stock market. Right. But I decided that I wanted to own real estate, hmm. and with $5 million, at a 75% loan to value, you can control $20 million worth of real estate. Hmm. And so I started buying or building real estate, office warehouse type buildings. Okay. So what was your first real estate deal? I built a business park in South Arlington, a pretty good sized business park. Okay. Do you still have it today or did, did you I, still? I, I do still have it today. Wow. Okay. And it's good now because that was 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago. 
and properties that were financed for 20, 15 or 20 or 25 years are starting to be paid for. Hmm. And the other thing is they, they double in value about every 15 years. Right. So, Ron, one of the things that fascinates me about you is your understanding of leverage and really being able to create wealth, to generate wealth. You know, when we were talking off camera just a minute ago, we spoke a lot about creating wealth. How do you generate wealth? And you know, I want to talk about your new book here in a minute that really goes into generating wealth. But talk a little bit about using bank loans, using leverage. I think a lot of people are very scared or fearful of levering up. And so talk a little bit about that, how you've been able to use that to create wealth in your life. Well, I think it's hard to talk about it without talking about the book, the, the title to the new book. It'll be my 10th book is From Homeless to 100 Million. Wow. And I had written a lot of books about how to get loans and mm-hmm. how to run businesses and how to market. and But I had never written a book. I never just sat and thought about, well, how did I get where I'm at? Because I lived in a mobile home until 10 years ago or a little more than that maybe but and I, even today I don't really consider myself wealthy although I know that I am hmm. but I'm still reasonably modest my only weakness is cars I think right I live in a modest home and so I had to sit and think for a minute how did I get here because if I'm going to write a book and articulate that to others hmm. I'm going to have to think about how that works how I got here it's a great yes. point yes so you did a lot of that again by being able to use leverage. So I want to let's let's go into some details about that. You know, say on your first deal, or you're talking about if you had five million dollars in cash, being it, you're able to control twenty million dollars in in real estate. How does that work? How does somebody do that? Well, first, I think that a lot of people would take the five million dollars and go to the house, hmm. and that, that's just real. Yeah, I think most a lot of people, maybe most, yeah, would just go to the house because mm-hmm. you could retire pretty comfortably with five million dollars. Yep. And I just, I just wanted to do a lot more than that at that point in my life. I said I wanted to be worth, when I was 60 years old, I wanted to have $50 million worth of real estate. Mm. And I wanted to owe nobody nothing. And yeah. I wanted to tell everybody to kiss my ass. <laughs> and so that was kind of my goal that I set for getting there. And I don't think I quite made it, but it was darn close. The leverage comes in because, you know, one of the little vignettes that I like to tell people is, for instance, I'm going to assume you have really good credit. Mm-hmm. Okay. How much are you being paid for that? Nothing. Nothing. Nobody's giving you anything for that. You worked hard to get that really good credit. Mm. And so my thought was, you know, you should be compensated for having really good credit. What a great point. And the way you get compensated for having really good credit is to use it. Mm. Okay. Now, you know, on the back cover of the book, there's a little list of things. Don't buy this book if you're adverse to owning real estate. Don't buy this book if you you don't want to borrow money, if you want to be debt-free. Because I tell everybody, you know, you can self-park your car instead of valet parking. Right. And you can eat at cheap restaurants, and you cannot leave good tips. And you can retire and have a million bucks, and you can be cheap. It's a miserable way to live. (laughs) Okay. But we all know people that are like that. Right. Oh, I mean... The majority of people. Well, maybe. And I, I don't think they really thought through everything, but they just live. And, and I hate to say cheap. It sounds like such a, a negative word. They're frugal. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, you valet parked, I valet parked. He parked across the street. Okay. He saved right. four bucks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so all that's part of his part of his mantra of saving. Do you think that that's a, a mindset that transcends just saving the money? One of the things I was talking about with somebody earlier this week is there's a lot of people who choose to be risk averse in an effort to 
maintains security. But what it actually does is creates a lot of insecurity later in their life. Well, I think maybe maybe we're close to the definition of an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Because an entrepreneur, I always tell people I have an incredibly low aversion to risk. Even at my age today, I'm 66. And I should be gathering up all my money and worried about what the future looks like and so right. on. And we've all got a, a grandparent, okay, that's like that. They won't go get their car washed because it costs 12 bucks. Yep. And so that's not me. Hmm. But I do think we've kind of stumbled on the definition of an entrepreneur, and that is that aversion to risk. Right. Do you think that being risk tolerant can be learned? Do you think it's something that people are born with, or do you think they can acquire that muscle over time? I don't think we're born with it. I think that depending on when we were raised and how we were raised and what our parents were Hmm. has a big influence on that. If your dad was a doctor, he probably expects you to be a doctor. Right. And if not, he expects you to go to college. Hmm. And he's probably going to teach you that saving your money and being debt free is a good thing to do. Hmm. And he's not going to encourage you to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's smart. And the reason that I ask is because I'm always curious, this kind of goes into a different direction, but there's a lot of of couples out there where one person is very risk tolerant and one person is very risk averse, and it causes a lot of tension. And I was just having this conversation with somebody this week. Can you handle that sort of situation if one person wants to push and one person wants to pull? And maybe it's not even a a marriage or relationship or just maybe it's a, a business partnership. Yeah, I can certainly see it in a business partnership because the the aspirations of the partners could be different. So one of them wants to get really big and one of them is satisfied with where they're at. Mm-hmm. I call it one-foot-itis for a boat. Everybody mm-hmm. wants a boat that's one foot longer than the one right. they have. Okay. <laughs> and true. so, again, I think it's part of that entrepreneurial thing. You know, I guess I was forced into it, so I wasn't influenced by my parents so much. I think the age of your parents can have something to do with it, too. And even your grandparents, because I know people my age or a little older than me in their 70s that have never, ever paid over $50 for a shirt, ever. Wow. They're not going to pay over $50 for yeah. a shirt. And they're with a, and you can buy a, sh- a pretty nice shirt for 50 bucks. okay? Yeah. But you can also go in Neiman Marcus and find shirts, Etro's, right. that are 650 Yeah. And when those this, guys, uh, looks like what you're wearing today. Yeah, Robert Graham. And when they look at that shirt and say 650, they say, "Well, that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's just crazy." Yeah. And by the way, they might be right. It doesn't right. make them bad or or wrong necessarily. Yeah. It's just the, it's just where they came from. But they've seen so many bad times as mm-hmm. well as good times, and I think that's trained them. And they they want to impart the bad time stories. Interesting. Are you willing to go to zero? in the pursuit of something greater? Well, I think today, no. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But there were plenty of times that we were at zero. And, you know, I always say until you've made payroll with using a credit card. Right. We'd be $200,000 overdrawn at the bank. And the bank would still pay our checks because they loved us. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then some big checks would come and everything would be okay. But that's got to be the ultimate definition of being risk adverse. (laughs) Right. But and go off and buy a car for five hundred dollars that you know you can get the twelve hundred dollars for the engine out of, mm-hmm. but it may take you two weeks. Right. But you don't have the five hundred dollars to pay for the car. Right. So you got to shuffle your feet a little bit to get to get the twelve hundred. Mm-hmm. And being being able to actually stomach something like that, I think takes takes a certain person. Yeah, I think most people it would be unfair 
for me to try to teach people that they should be $200,000 overdrawn at the bank. Yeah. So I'm not true. afraid to teach somebody to use their credit card in the early days to make their payroll. Right. If they really believe in it. Mm-hmm. And I have been pretty much broke a couple of times. I bought a trailer park in 1977, a mobile home trailer park. I was dating a girl and she said, if, if you buy that, I'm leaving you because you work all the time now. And I did. And she did. Wow. And a year later, the gas pipes broke underneath the ground and I didn't have the money to fix them. It was like a hundred thousand dollars or something crazy, you know, and I lost it. I gave it back to the lender. Wow. And so that was about as close to broke as you can get. Hmm. And it was sure, sure a disappointment. I used to rent exotic cars and we lost a million or more dollars renting exotic cars. Wow. Really? And that was, that was 10 years ago. So I think the more you're successful, the more you need to have a failure every now and then. Why is that? Because I think you have to learn to be a little bit humble and you Mm. have to learn to plan a little better and you have to be able to think back and say, what did I do that was wrong? Hmm. And we're so guilty of making a business plan and thinking the numbers are real, but we're not sure. So we, we cut them by 20%. Hmm. And then in the end, it's still hard to hit the goals. Right. It's really hard. Such a great point of, of you have to have a failure every now and then. I love that. What are some of the mistakes that you see people making out there right now, whether it's in investing or just starting their companies? You know, Are there things that you're looking on the sidelines going, man, these are common themes, but they're incorrect? Well, I consult. I used to do a lot more consulting. I'm doing less and less of it. But the, the common theme with consulting is people like yourself that are talking about starting a business right. and this wouldn't include you because you are starting one and mm. apparently doing okay, hoping to do okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I get a lot of those people that have an idea for a business and maybe they even have a business plan and you say, okay, so how much will you sell in the first month mm. or the second month or the third month? They have no idea how to build a pro forma financial statement, no idea how to project the sales, no idea how to base those projected sales in something that's real, no idea how to project their expenses. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have a business plan and they want to hire somebody to do that for them. And all they have is the idea. And, you know, some of my rich investor friends say the world is awash in ideas and it's a wash in money. And I believe that. Hmm. A lot of people have ideas. And yep. there's plenty of money out there. Don't kid yourself. Right. Getting it now is a little bit a little bit hard. Right. But it's out there. But it is out there. And so what the investors say, there are very few people that can connect the two. Hmm. So somebody that has an idea can put the plan together, get the money, and then go do it. Right. That's the person that you want to invest with. Right. Not the person with the idea. Mm-hmm. And not the person with the money, right. the person that's connected the two and made something happen. It's a great point. I think that really speaks to being able to execute on an idea. I mean, yes. ideas are everywhere, yes. floating around all over the place. I, and I, I have friends that come to me all the time wanting to start a business or they have an idea. And I can tell you that only one of those people have actually acted on it. So I think that action is such a huge that you're obviously a man of action. When you set out to do something, you actually do it. Why is it they don't act, I wonder? I don't know that it's necessarily out of fear. A lot of those people that I would talk to can't even use Excel. So yeah. how would they build a business plan? Mm. And I tried helping some of those people in the early days, and I found that they were almost unhelpable hmm. because they just didn't have 
the set of skills necessary to do it to make it happen yeah and, and they, they want somebody to come and invest money and right of course they want to keep 80 percent of the business for the idea right you know and you know i went through that when i priced my stock for my private stock offering hmm. it's a really touchy thing right coming up with the share values for the stock yeah but i soon learned that owning 10 percent of a company that had a real board of directors and had real investors mm -hmm. and real goals and real money was and, and me only owning 90 instead of 100 was worth a whole lot more than owning 100% of the same company with none of those other benefits. 100%. Yeah, I agree. And I think that a lot of people are, they're comfortable in what they're doing. And they're not necessarily risk averse, but they're, they're comfortable with their steady paycheck and their comfort of the situation that they're in at the moment, that they don't want to jump. They don't want to make the leap to go do the, the idea that they're talking about. Well, and a lot of those things we're talking about, too, tie right in to the mantra for the book, which is they're all interested in building income. Mm. Nobody ever really thought about building wealth. Hmm. If you just stop and talk to somebody, they're all interested in how much their paycheck's going to be Friday and how much they're going to make this year. Right. And will that be more than last year? Right. They never really thought about well, how about if I didn't have such a big paycheck this year, but when I was 40, I could have $10 million. Mm -hmm. I make the numbers up, but they're directionally correct. Right. So tell me your definition of income versus wealth. Because I think, I think a lot of people actually, Ron, are actually confused about that. About They think that a, a large paycheck means wealth. They think they're synonymous. Right. And I just don't think they are. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people make a good living, a six-figure salary yeah one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year and they own their home and they're driving a new acura and yeah. they're, they're doing okay but the, i don't think they're wealthy now i think everybody's idea of wealth has has to be it's a personal kind of thing mm -hmm. i think most people would agree that a million dollars is not wealthy anymore mm -hmm. and I, I think most people would agree that five million probably is certainly at the beginning cusp of right. being wealthy $5 and, and you mean five million in the bank invested in net worth. In net worth, okay. In net worth. You may own a $5 million home and owe nothing on it. Right. That would put you in that category. Interesting, okay. And also, I think when you stop and think about, well, how would I ever get $5 million? If you stop and think, you're making a hundred and a quarter a year. If you lived on 25000 a year, it would take you 50 years to get $5 million. Hmm. Wow, now that's kind of daunting, isn't it? Yeah. Who wants to make 25000 a year for 50 and wait years. 50 years to get $5 million? Hmm. And I think that's where you get to the leverage. If we come full circle to where you kind of started, right. you don't have enough money to do it. It's not possible. It requires income, a certain amount of income, to then acquire the leverage to create the wealth. I guess it requires some income, but it mostly requires a proven ability to use the leverage hmm and produce something with it. Right. If you stop and think about buying the first rent house, the banker's probably going to be a little skeptical, but you're going to put a little bit more down. You know, I have a lot of people come to me and say, well, I got my bonus this year. I got $50,000. What should I do with it? 98% of them go and buy stock in the stock market hmm. or a mutual fund or whatever. And right. they are assured of making 4.721% for the rest of their life, right. long-term, if they leave money. it in there. Right. If and never touch it. it. Never touch it. Don't take it out. Yep. Don't try to outsmart the stock market. Just leave it, yep. and you'll make 4.72%. <laughs> but you know what? If you take our $5 million example and that little 50 and that 4%, you don't get to $5 million. Hmm.
So how, if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, I've got a $50,000 bonus, what would you tell them to do with it? I'd tell them to go buy a $150,000 rent house uh-huh. to put the 50 down, which would be a third of the price. Right. You make a loan to value of 66%. Most lenders are going to be up for that. Right. Okay. And then fix the house up and then rent it. That's where everybody gets sideways because everybody thinks about flipping houses. Hmm. And you wanted to add, you asked what the difference was in income and wealth. There's the difference. Okay. Because when you flip the house, you paid $150 for it and you sell it for $200, you made $50,000. Now that's pretty good because you were only making a buck and a quarter this year, so now you've made a buck seventy-five. Right. But now you got to go find another house. Hmm. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Hard to find another house. Right. Not saying you can't, and you probably will. But it's hard. It's hard. So if the house is really worth two hundred, why not rent it as if the capitalized cost were two hundred for two thousand dollars a month? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you get your two thousand dollars a month. People say, the first thing they say is, oh, my God, I'm going to have to collect rent. What if I knock a hole in the wall? <laughs> well, you're going to fix it. Yeah. You're going to fix the hole You deal in the with wall. it. You deal with it. Hmm. Your mortgage on the house, at the loan to value we talked about, especially with today's interest rates, is going to be $912 a month. Hmm. You're collecting $2,000. Yep. Okay. You're going to pay your property taxes and your insurance. One month out of the year, it's going to be vacant. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm making it up, but it's directionally correct. Right. And you're going to have to fit. The air conditioner is going to go out and it's going to cost $3,800 to fix. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're going to be beside yourself. Because that's your whole year. That's your whole year. Yeah. Maybe you'll use your credit card to pay for the air conditioning to get it fixed. Right. Okay. And you're going to go along year after year after year. And then in 15 years, you're going to look up. And that house is going to be worth $400,000 and you're going to owe nothing on it. Hmm. And all you put in was 50. Yeah. Now, now you're now you're set. On, on your the la- first house. On the first house. Now on the later deals you're going to put less down. Right. Cuz the banker is going to say, "Yeah, you've got one rent house. You've proved to us you can collect rents. We'll give you an 80% loan to value on that house." Hmm. So now you only need 30,000 to buy the next 150 house. Right. Of course you'll buy some that are 120 and some that are 170 and one some that are 75. Right. That all the windows are broken out of and mm-hmm. you'll have to fix them up. Do you think that people then need to make a switch from say single family homes into multifamily or commercial or so you own a lot of commercial property. It's an interesting thing and I have a whole chapter in the book that talks about it. Okay. Some people like office, some people like retail. By the way, nobody really likes retail right now. They're going away. Yep. Some people like multifamily apartments. And you're, I know you're into storage as well. I do self-storage. I have one self-storage facility. I like office warehouse, which is commercial. Mm. You know, we're in the middle of the, of the pandemic now, and we've, we've lost no rents. Everybody's paying their rents. Wow. But I focus on mom and pops, small businesses. I have a whole chapter that describes kind of what my secret sauce is as far as what I buy and what I rent and how it works and mm. how I think it's the right thing for me at least. Right. I've had big boxes. Big boxes are the best buy store. You okay. know, one morning we liked big boxes and we got up and we read the news and Goldman Sachs went bankrupt last night. Mm. And that office building they were in that they were paying $2.3 million a month in rent on, you're not getting anything on it starting mm-hmm. today. Yeah. I don't like big boxes. Hmm. I've had big boxes that go vacant. They take a long time to rent. And the kind of companies that rent them want a lot of, you know, a lot of bonuses and discounts. And There's a lot of contingency. A lot of le- they, they have a lot of leverage on you as a landlord. Right. And so 
The moms and pops move in and out. They fail. They come back. They're paying a thousand a month. You raise their rent a hundred bucks. They say, okay, you know, mm-hmm. it's a 10% increase. Right. You're never going to get a 10% increase in most kinds of real estate. Right. So I tell people to start with houses. Okay. And after you've gotten a few houses and you've learned the ropes, then go buy you a $300,000 warehouse. Okay. The difference in warehouses and offices is you never hear from them. Hmm. All you get is a Christmas card. Right. You never get a call. Mm-hmm. Most of them unstop their own toilet. Right. You know, if the roof leaks, they'll call you. Right. But you just... And there's, there's not no, a lot of problems. Not a lot of turnover. There's no holes in the walls. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just better and it's bigger money because if you right. can get the same percent on the bigger money, you're better. You're better. And it's as easy to do a big deal as it is a small deal. I'm absolutely convinced. That's such that. a great point. I remember in Biz Owners this year, you talked about it's just as difficult to get a million dollars in debt than it is to get $5 million in debt. It is. And you said just as difficult. Could be just as easy. Just as easy. Just as easy. You're right. You're right. So, you know, I want to talk real quick about, so say somebody has, you know, five rent houses and now they're going to go buy a commercial property. Do you think that they should have the cash from their income to go buy that commercial property or could they refinance their houses and use that cash? Oh no, you relever over and over. Yeah. You keep sucking the cash out. Banks Hmm. don't like it. Hmm. But eventually after you've proven you can do it, and I mean, it makes sense. You've got a 15-year loan. You've paid on it seven years. Right. The property's worth double what you paid for it or, or a lot more than you paid for it. Right. You pull 150 out. Now, with 150, we can buy three more rent houses. Hmm. It's pretty easy to see you could accelerate this pretty rapidly. Quickly. But what I talk about in the book, I lay out a little mathematical plan that if you buy two rent houses a year, and you know, you can be a school teacher and your partner can work at LTV and y'all can have make 125 between the two of you for your whole life. Mm-hmm. And you can buy two rent houses a year because you have really good credit and you have that first bonus. Maybe your mom died and left you a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. And you buy that first rent house and you can buy two rent houses a year. And at the end of 10 or 15 years, you'll be worth at least $5 million. Hmm. Never going to get it with LTV in the school district. Why don't people do that? I guess because the risk aversion. Hmm. And I think some because they just never really thought about it. I also think that if you wait too long, the older we get normally for normal people, I'm not a normal person, obviously, right. but the older we get, the more risk adverse we get. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's because we remember the negative things that happened to us, hmm. not the positive things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people are scared to deploy their cash? Because I mean, you know, if, so you say average family, if they take $50,000 and tie it up in a house, that can be a scary thing for a lot of people to not have the cash on hand. Well, I think at your age, you can leap tall buildings. So you don't give a shit. Right. But I think the older you get, the more adverse you become. You want to save that little bit of cash. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, the best place to start is you don't have to start with a mantra of, I'm going to be wealthy. The best place to start is to own your own home. Hmm. Okay. Just own your own home. Right. And after you've owned your own home one year, you go buy a second home. And rent your first one. And you rent your first one. And it's important because when you get the second one, if it's going to be owner-occupied, right. you can probably get a 95 or 90% loan on it. Mm-hmm. So and you put very little down. You put almost no money down. You move into the second house. You might only stay there a few weeks. <laughs> so you just kind of keep going. Keep going. You probably won't do that more than a couple of times because then you'll have enough money that you don't you don't need to move into the house you just right. bought. Right. Although if you can, there's nothing wrong with that. Why not? Yeah, and rent the old one. Because you're a guy, I mean, you like to kind of move around, don't you? I mean, you. Well, 
you know, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's starters and there's runners. Starters have no aversion to debt. They're pretty creative. Don't give them a big stack of papers and say, okay, find all the papers that relate to this. Hmm. Okay, because they're like pissed off. Right. They want nothing Not to do with that. Not detail people. Not detail. You know, they know what to focus on and they can be detailed and even and even ADD about the things that they think are important, but they're not good at that. Okay. And then on the opposite side, you have the runners. The runners are like, okay, I'll go through the stack of papers. Yeah. They have lots of aversion to debt. They're never going to make a payroll on a credit card. And if they get some cash, they want to save it. Hmm. And they don't tend to be as creative. Interesting. Very few people have proven they can do both. Hmm. Okay. It's such, such great knowledge. So I want to talk about your book again for a minute. You speak so well about creating wealth and not just income. So give us a few of your favorite tips or tricks or things for creating wealth or just things where people can be smarter with their cash. I'm sure you have a lot of that in your book, but I'd like to talk about a few of your favorites. Well, we've already touched on a few. Um, First, I don't think you can get there being cheap. Mm -hmm. And the reason you can't get there being cheap isn't for the reason you think. You're thinking, well, if I'm cheap, I save some money. That's not it at all. Mm. You need people to like you. You need people to want to help you. Mm. You want people to, to say, wow, you did so good on that. I'm so proud of that. You know, you did right. a great deal. And so, and when you surround yourself with people and you don't have a reputation for being cheap, could be employees, for instance. Right. And they won't always be happy. Let's don't delude ourselves. Yeah. But if you're fair with people, and you're honest with people, and you're not cheap, you'll find a lot of people supporting you, including the loan officer at the bank. Hmm. You're his success story. I can't believe you did so good with that. Right. You know. So I think it's important that you're not too cheap. Okay. You know, I was at a conference one time, and a guy got up on stage, and he said, if you want to be wealthy, stop buying $5 coffees at Starbucks. He planned it all out over the next 30 years. You're going to spend this much money, and, and it's going to equate to this amount. You would say that's ridiculous. Oh, I'd poo-poo all over that. Yeah. But it goes right to what I said at the beginning. You can do that, and you can retire with a million dollars, and you'll be debt-free, and you'll be secure, and it'll be okay. You'll get your Social Security check and maybe a retirement check from the company you work for as well. Yeah. What is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? I don't think there's any substitute for hard work. Mm. You know, a lot of these kids that are coming up now, they want that balance between their life and their work, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I'm all for that. Just don't bitch when you don't have any money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Just don't bitch when you don't have any money. Right. But there's no substitute. My competitors used to say, Sturgeon, we just can't get ahead of you. You work all the time. Yeah. You take paperwork home. You work. You work on the weekends. You work on. How would we ever get ahead of you? Mm-hmm. And I'm a nut about take 30 minutes to build a spreadsheet that'll help you do something that will save you one minute a week. Hmm. Because in 31 weeks, you're banking. Right. So you're all about creating efficiencies. All about creating efficiencies. I love that. And I assume that, you know, when all your friends were telling you how hard you worked and your competitors, you don't really see it as work, right? I mean, you love what you're doing. You enjoy it. I love what I'm doing. And they say, you know, Sturgeon, you just keep shooting the gun. Everybody else will get a little extra money or have a great sales week and they're they're gone to the Caribbean. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can somebody find what they love. I know that's pretty personal to everybody, but I mean, you've been able to create your wealth by doing the things that you love. I think a lot of people kind of look look at it and go, well, I'm going to have to be in a job for the next 30 years that I don't 
think is great or I don't have a passion for it, it'll, but it'll kind of get me where I'm going. And you've kind of, you know, you've been able to do what you're passionate about. I think you can learn to like what you're doing. I think in my case, I'm extremely competitive. Hmm. So I'm always wanting to beat everybody's ass. Okay. I want to beat Google's ass on the search engine optimization. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to prove that I can do more this month than I did last month. So I think, and you have to have that entrepreneurial spirit. Right. It, It probably starts with something like that. But, you know, I see people selling, but they're not very good at selling. And, Mm. you know, they really need to stop selling. Right. Some people love being told no because they're competitive. Yeah. They love being told. Well, they don't love being told no, but they live with being told no over and over and over. And if if you're building a company and you're selling anything, you're going to get told no a lot. A lot. A lot of rejection. Yeah, a lot of rejection. You better get used to it. Some people thrive on that and other people don't. And that's almost the definition of a good seller versus one that's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to know what are some of your favorite book recommendations for listeners out there? And we've got listeners who are, are all over the map, but what are a few that, that you'd recommend? I like The E-Myth by, I forget who it's by, but it talks about thinking about ourselves and whether we need to be an entrepreneur and whether we need to be in business. And these are going to be the problems you're going to encounter. Hmm. And are you prepared for those? And I recommend that highly. And then I like the millionaire mind by Harv Ecker. Okay. Millionaires are different than other people. I believe it's a fact. Hmm. Millionaires see opportunity where other people see challenges. Hmm. And there's chapters in the book that are just like that over and over and over. The things that, the way a millionaire looks at something or somebody that wants to be a millionaire looks at something, perceives it and reacts to it is different than somebody that doesn't want to be a millionaire. Hmm. By the way, though, I'm always quick to point out, don't be bitching because you need the money, but we need lots of really good, strong worker ants. Hmm. there's nothing wrong with being a really strong worker ant yeah you know you got two kids you live in a modest brick home you buy new cars every four years the kids are well dressed everybody's happy we've got a little money put back nothing wrong with that picture if you're happy with that Hmm. i couldn't be happy with it right neither could i (laughs) so ron where can people find you i know you have a website but where can people locate you and then tell us again when your book comes out and where to find that book don't know the date yet it'll be on amazon it'll be sometime next year not hard to find if you google me i'm the first 75 hits and you'll find all kinds of things about me that you had no business knowing (laughs) Uh, the website is called mr mission possible okay and i firmly believe and it's important right now in this time we're in because so many people say that they can't get where they want to be in life. And mm. I'm sorry, I just, I still don't buy that. Yeah. And I, I refuse to be criticized because I have money, because I worked really hard and I lived in a mobile home and I poured concrete and I did a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have to do, right. shouldn't have had to do. I didn't, nobody gave me nothing. But also, I just think if you really want to do something, I was homeless. I mean, mm. it, I was abused by my mother. The court took me out of the home before I went and lived with my father who died. I mean, how much worse does it really get? Hmm. And so if you want to make something out of yourself, I believe you can. Yeah, that's so great. Well, I cannot tell you how much I've appreciated talking with you. I think that everything that you stand for and that you talk about is so pertinent to everybody, really, and especially our listeners on the podcast. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for letting us come to your amazing garage and office and just excited to publish your podcast and talk with you. So thank you. This is the Evan York Podcast.